Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, food and drink for Cambridge and the surrounding areas. I'm Matt Bentman and I'm joined by Sue Bailey, and here is what's coming up on today's programme. The Cambridge resident continues her memories of food in Cambridge going back through the decades. And if you like mushrooms, even those who don't tend to come round to them eventually, then you're in the right place as Sue and the foraging chef go picking in the wilds of Cambridge. If you go down to the Round Church today, you're sure of a big surprise as the Cambridge Union's Orator opens its doors to the public. And we've also got plenty of food and drink news, and at the end of the programme, a selection of jobs from the food and drink industry in and around the city. So let's get going. So, we're up to the merry month of June, and apart from yesterday's wet weather, it's been a scorcher. Here's Steve Thompson, the foraging chef and head chef of the Plough at Shepworth, talking from the very sunny Plough Pub Garden. Yeah, we've suddenly gone from wet and grey, haven't we, to nice blue skies and warm, which is absolutely lovely. So what does that mean from the foraging front? Certainly the wet to warm, wet to warm kind of thing is really good for a lot of mushrooms. So that's what we're going to talk about mainly today, is three types of nice mushrooms we've been finding in the last week or so. And that's really helped out, yeah. So now we've got this nice hot weather, we're getting the fruits of uh, the first one, which is St George's mushrooms. That's a lovely name. Why is it called that? Because normally they come up at the end of April. George's Day, of course. <laughs> yeah, around that sort of time. That's normally where you expect to find them, a couple of weeks either side of that. So they're very late this year. The last two years we haven't had any, really. It's just been a bad couple of years for them, so it's really nice this year and they're absolutely everywhere. I'd get out quick because this heat is starting to dry them up now, so they're just starting to get a bit maggoty. With a lot of mushrooms, that's just a thing. You just True. You, once with. they've gone to a certain age, that's what happens, yes. Yeah, but yeah, they're still nice and fresh. We've just had a load this morning, so that's really good. They're nice. They're not too hard to identify, really, at this time of year. Um, there's not really anything else. I mean... There are a couple of other ones that you're less likely to find that are worth looking at, but really the St George's mushroom, it's white, it's kind of white creamy colour, same with the gills, quite crowded gills, so really close together. It grows in rings really, roadside parks, edges of woodlands. Does it look a bit like a field mushroom? In the sense of that it's quite chunky and white can grow up to quite big but you tend to be looking at anywhere between five centimeters and seven or eight centimeter cap size it's a nice meaty mushroom it smell i suppose is one of those things that is quite subjective to people you always see it described as mealy now to me mealy smells like wet flour and i think that's what it smells like to a lot of people but 
the things that you hear people I've heard sugar soap and loads of other things like that pair it to so the smell is quite oatmeal perhaps exactly yeah that kind of smell and I think you're very unlikely to find anything else at this time of year that smells like that uh, hopefully it doesn't taste like that no it doesn't no it's got a lovely flavour um, it can almost be sickly if you actually eat too much of it it's got quite a nice sweetness to it acidity lemon juices things like that cut through it and it's absolutely fantastic we've actually been playing around with it with a dessert that's been on the specials board which may well go back on again this week been doing that with acorn um, cider vinegar to cut through the sweetness we've made a miso puree out of it we've made an ice cream out of it we've candied some and then we've served that with puff barley as well well we always have a dessert with mushrooms on all the time here one of our little plays that we do so it works really well for that it lends itself nicely hopefully uh, coming tomorrow night to have your foraging tasting menu and i hope there'll be something mushroomy on it yeah we've got uh, some lovely velvet shanks we collected in the winter and probably spoke about on here actually where we've got them on the desserts we'll probably have the st george's one up on the specials we're just waiting for the next mushroom we're going to talk about to start fruiting and i went and checked my patches last week and it was just starting but a bit too small to harvest and that is uh, chicken of the woods You've talked about this one before because it's quite a distinctive mushroom, isn't it? It is, and now's the time to go out and start checking your patches. So it likes the edges of rivers, really. Looking at things like willows, oaks, yew trees, cherry trees, anything like that, and normally along riverbanks. It's bright orange in colour, normally got a bright yellow bottom, and there really isn't anything that looks like it. Mushroomy in shape? Um, it's a bracket for funkness. It is quite bright in colour, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. It's bright orange on top bright yellow underneath and some of them are duller and some of them are really bright so it's quite a good beginner mushroom to find the important notes with it is it needs to be cooked through don't undercook it it'll make you sick try a little bit before you go in for a long bit so have a little bit the night before and then eat it properly the next day if you're okay because some people do get a bit of a reaction to it i'm not so sure how many that is people actually having reactions to it or just people undercooking it so the cooking of it is the most important part what we normally do is we dice it up or chop it up and then we boil it in water first before then frying it off so that is blitzing it quite a lot from the cooking front isn't yeah, it? yeah I mean it gives you a byproduct as well so then you've got a lovely mushroom stock left over and often a lot of the time we then tend to so we boil it and then we ferment it and then we turn it into chicken of the woods nuggets which is quite a nice little play on your classic chicken nuggets but they've got a wonderful thing and I mean chicken of the woods kind of describes it pretty well it does have that sort of chickeny flavour to it so it's a very good vegan replacement for meat so there's basically three different textures to it so you've got the kind of closer to the tree tends to be a bit woodier and harder then you've got the middle part which is kind of in between and then the tips which are almost gelatinous so I've heard of a few chefs using that gelatinous tips bit as a vegan alternative to foie gras and things like that foie gras is not an ingredient we use so we don't need a vegan alternative for it there's three different bits to it so you can get so many different harvests out of it like the drier bits we tend to dry out and turn into a powder or we dry out and we use to make stocks and things like that. The middle bits we then boil up and we turn into, say, ketchup. There's a recipe for that on our page. Tips, yeah, go to our Chicken of the Woods nuggets quite often. Loads of different things we do with it. How long do they sort of hang around for? in the woods as you're going to start to get them popping up anytime really from sort of late april time and they you can find them in the autumn still really yeah their main flush is normally around may june though is normally when i pick it late april may june okay so it's something that doesn't sort of come and then disappear overnight no 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 and it's normally when you find it you find it in big amounts as well you're talking like seven eight nine kilos well you can go well plus on top of that the last year our patch was about seven or eight kilos just for one mushroom which was quite nice they yeah they grow big and they grow weighty so that checked out for them last week it's there but it's not worth harvesting mm. yet so when you say big you're talking 10 centimeters 40 I mean, 50 you can get so we pick it from a fallen oak tree that's just been lying there for years i've been picking this one for about seven or eight and it just fills up with it probably 
12 foot chunk of oak and about three foot in diameter and most of the outside bark will be covered in the mushroom yeah so it goes really well and it's a lovely one to pick at this time of year the third one that we pick is one that a lot of people say is best picked young and it's the dried saddle mushroom or the pheasant back is another name for it and it's so called that because yeah it kind of almost looks like a saddle the way it shapes it's another one that grows off the tree and it's also the top of it is kind of reminiscent to the back of a pheasant so there's some pheasant feathers this one you want to sort of pick if you're going to chuck it in the pan pick it around about fist size kind of thing anything bigger than that and it starts to get really really tough but actually what we use it for we it's got a nice melony cucumbery flavor to it but i think the best way we wait till it gets sort of dinner plate size and then we dehydrate it and grind it into a powder and it's got this fantastic almost fudgy flavor to it that works a lot better for us and we use it quite often in that way we make dried saddle fudge with it because it's instantly the thing that kind of reminds me of it so we use it on desserts a lot we had it on our last menu from last year's ones and we've just collected well the start of this year's ones but i'm sure we'll be getting loads and loads more because they're quite a common mushroom and they're quite often left because people say once they get bigger than a fist size they so people don't use them. it i think that's where it actually comes into its own so get your dehydrators out when the weather's like this put it on an old fridge shelf in the garden it'll dry out use oh. the sun and again where do you find that that's in lots of woods so deciduous woods i quite often find it but a lot of these tree ones just driving through a village and just see one on the side of a tree or something like that I mean, the last ones we picked was walking down the side of a church the other day. We've dried that out at home and we use that for making stuff at home. Mm. So that was lovely. There must be so many mushrooms that people walk past every day. No idea what they are or how to use them. No, exactly. I mean, you get a lot of people really drumming in and getting cross if you pick lots of mushrooms and things like that. The fact of the matter is probably 90% plus of what grows rots and gets wasted because people either don't know what it is or people haven't found it. So, I mean, really, if you find a patch of something, pick it. You're not doing any harm. It's no different from an apple tree. If it's in a public place and you think other people might want to pick some as well, then that's when you could be considerate. You're not doing any harm to nature picking them all. It's like a fruiting body. True. So go for it. Cut it off. Have what you want. Yeah. And they'll always come back again. Yeah, I mean, you're more likely to do damage with your feet walking through the middle of the woods to the myocellin than you are picking a mushroom. You were mentioning about Rose Bay Willow. Yes, that's another thing. We've been out picking this week and uh, we've been picking the shoots of it. But it's a plant that we get lots from. And I think we've spoken about using the other leaves before after it flowers and making Ivan's chai tea, which is a fermented kind of Russian tea. What we're doing at the moment is we're picking shoots of it. So the top is six inches when it comes through the ground. Before it really does much in the way of leaves and certainly before it flowers. It's got leaves to it. Yeah, it's not got tough yet. It's the best way to describe it. So it's nice, soft. It's like the bendy parts of asparagus in texture. You pretty much treat it that way. It's nice and easy to identify, I think. You've got the key features of your leaves. It's got looping veins. The veins on the leaf never touch the outside of the leaf. On a long, thin, green leaf that can be red-tinged at the bottom. That's quite a good identification, I think, if you look at the veins. When the flowers come up, it's four petals, nice and pink. So it's really easy to identify when the flowers are up. But at this stage, what we're picking is before that. The two-tone of it is quite useful when it's in the shoot stage because quite often the bottom of the plant is red and then the top of it gets greener and greener as it gets to the top. When you find it, it's in abundance. It likes wet. So we find it often on the edge of woodlands and ditches or marshes and stuff like that. And when you find a little bit, you find a load. It's a nice, really nice alternative to things like, I hate saying asparagus because so many plants get compared to asparagus and it's just a bit of a nothingy thing to compare it to. It's kind of fresh, green, sweet. And it, yeah, treat it in the same way. In a pan, you can do it with a splash of water or you can do it with a splash, a tiny splash of water and a big knob of butter and just cook it out really quickly. 
nice bit of salt maybe a squeeze of lemon or something like that if you want the acidity in there but it's a really nice easy cooker and we've been doing that with our hake dish this week we've actually been doing it a completely different way to what i've described as well so <laughs> we've been brushing it with birch bark caramel and uh whacking it in a pan with butter and then finishing it with a longestine salt what about dock because i've been noticing quite a lot of docks coming up recently curly docks up at the moment and we use the stems of that so it's part of the Ramex family. It's quite closely related to rhubarb. Yeah. Stems are worthwhile, and we tend to candy them. And I think, yeah, there is a recipe on my page for sticky docky pudding. So where we replace the date element in sticky toffee pudding with candied dock stems, and that works really nicely. I love the name of that. There wasn't really anything else we could call it when we were doing a candied uh, dock stem cake. Get those caramel flavours in there. And I wouldn't say it's a rhubarb flavour. It's kind of... It's definitely got an acidity to it, and I'd say it's somewhere between melon, rhubarb and lemon in flavour. And it's a bit more subtle, well, quite a bit more subtle than all of them, but it's got a lovely flavour to it. Really and it works really well. And as you say, it's abundant and it's everywhere, so it's another great ingredient to use. Oh, well, I've been weeding them out of my garden. I think I will uh, candy them. So yeah. how would you candy them? So what we do is we cut them into one centimetre long pieces and we boil them in a 100% stock syrup. So by 100%, I mean equal quantities of sugar and water. And we boil them for about 20 minutes until they just start to go see-through. Then we strain them off. We dry them out for about 5 to 10 minutes at really low temperatures, so sort of 45 degrees, just to stop the soakedness on the outside. So when we toss them in the granulated sugar, which is the next step, they don't make the sugar wet, basically. After we've dried them out for 10, 15 minutes, we toss them in sugar and then we leave them in the dehydrator at 60 degrees for about an hour. And then you get the lovely chewy sweets for it. You can use it for decorating cakes. We put it through the cake mix and then bake it in the oven, which works nicely. There's nothing to say you can't just cut the stems, peel them back and blanch them in water and butter and eat them with a nice bit of fish or something, though. They'd be lovely like that. Yes, because of course you can eat rhubarb type things with fish yeah no it's a great combination i mean we we use sorrel and stuff a lot with fish but we don't use a lot of the other family members yeah it works really nicely with that remind me of what your web page is because i'm sure there's some really interesting recipes and ideas you are mentioning in case people need to check up on it yeah so if you go on facebook it's the foraging chef so if you go facebook.com forward slash the foraging chef or you can go on my instagram it's a bit harder to find because you've got to scroll through on instagram but it's chef steve thompson use the search bar at the top of facebook type in the keyword well there's a lot to be hunting for this month then steve yeah it's a lovely time get out in the woods go forage weather permitting of course unless you're also a fan of the rain many thanks to steve thompson the foraging chef okay time for our first news break Finboy's restaurant is now open and you can find it at the fish butchery number two mill road you can book or you can walk in. It's open from 12 till 4, Tuesday to Saturday, and the menu consists of snacks, small plates, large plates, sweets and cheese. The choice is stunning. And earlier in the week, the small plates included dishes featuring oysters, sea trout, Dover crab, smoked eels, mussels and cockles. The wine rooms in Hills Road, near the junction with Station Road, is opening next week. You can reserve a table by emailing hello at thewineroomscambridge.com. There are jobs available too. Details in our jobs roundup at the end of the programme. Cambridge Crop Share are having a farm day on the 26th of June. What does that mean? It means that you can volunteer to be an organic farmer and spend a day out in the fields with others. There's 10 spaces available for this date. It's at Willow Farm in Lode, and the tasks are seasonal, such as sowing, planting, weeding or harvesting, all Fenland farming. If you're interested, you can go online to cambridge.cropshare.org.uk and click on their sign-up sheet. They're a very well-established team. They're going into their 10th year now.
And Vanderlyle is about to reopen for indoor dining. If you have an outstanding reservation, check your emails for a message from them. More news in a bit. In our last programme, which you can download from the Cambridge 105 radio website, or any podcast catcher in fact, Valerie Bennett, who was born in Cambridge, talked about her memories of food in the city. We left her at the age of 15 or 16 at a milk bar in town, where today you would find Paper Chase. Now she continues on with her story. When I was a little bit older, I had a friend who lived in Rose Crescent, and I used to go there on a Saturday morning and study art history with her. We would probably go to the Fitzwilliam or whatever. But we always used to go to the Wim afterwards, and you had to queue. The Wim was a little coffee shop along Trinity Street, just before you got to Green Street. But anyway, you had to queue, you had to wait outside, and the queue would go down this long pathway, and eventually you would, you'd get to the people who were serving coffee and American donuts with a hole in the middle. They were just wonderful, and you had to wait while they cooked them by the actual place and you had to wait until they had enough to serve the next lot of people and then you'd all crowd in with your pot of real coffee which not pot cup of real coffee and this um, thing that you had (laughs) and it was just wonderful but there was no room at the end at all so you all had to stand up and things Mm. or people were sitting down you were sitting on people's laps it was just wonderful it became very popular tim hayward was saying it became very popular with the Monty Python oh, did it? Um, people. Oh, that's a little bit from, later than me. But and with Clive James as well. Oh, right. Yeah. It was a really good place. And there was a place around the corner in Green Street too that had coffee, but I, we only went this to the whim. Yeah. So it, it went on for some while, I think. Probably in a different guise, yeah. slightly. What about, you mentioned Rose Crescent. What about the Gardenia? That must have oh, been Oh, yes, that the must Gardenia. Have been there. there was the Gardenia and the health food shop next door was not like health food shops nowadays it sold pills and things and everything was healthy and they all looked unhealthy and my husband used to say that they were you know if you went in there you knew your skin was going to get bad because <laughs> they all had they all looked tired and haggard what the people who worked yes, there <laughs> the people who served it was as, a, as different to the place in uh, mill road arjuna's which was starting up then as well and fantastic place that <laughs> mm, mm. it was really and then there was the gardenia which was owned by a family of people who also owned i think they owned another one along um, regent street anyway and that was apparently meant to be really good food and other people i've spoken to have said that if you went downstairs you there was a little weenie restaurant with about three or four only three or four tables and, and this is the gardenia yes yeah. the gardenia and um you could eat there quite cheaply so students would and what sort of food Moroccan, that sort of thing. But I didn't actually eat there, but you could buy... If you went into the little shop above it, you could buy um, herbs and spices that you couldn't get anywhere else in Cambridge. Mm. They wouldn't have heard of them, quite apart from anything else. But I remember as a child, when I was at school, I must have been about 11, 10 or 11, when I was at Milton Road, you were taken as a treat at the end to... A shop place where you might work, and one of them was the Dorothy Bakery in the bottom of Auckland Road. So you would, they used to make what looked to me exactly like Chelsea buns. I don't know if they made them for 
uh, the Fitzwilliam. It'd be interesting to know. I've never really known, but I've always thought they were the Chelsea bands, masses of them, yeah. and um, lots of other bands and, you know, food, the Dorothy Bakery there. What about places like the Grandchester Tea Rooms? Does that, oh, yes. Does that exist? In, yes, it yeah. did. And there were two tea rooms, and we would go walk to one almost every Sunday with the dog and my father. And the first one was in Fenditton. You would walk across and through. It was just a lovely walk. And um, we used to go there more often because it was nearer when we lived in Milton Road. And they would have home cooked. It was a wonderful place. And you'd sat in the garden. And and the other place was, which is still going, the orchard, which was, even then, you would go and have a piece of cake and a cup of tea on a Sunday. <laughs> yes. Pretty much as it is now. As it is now, really. Yeah. Well, I don't know that it made other food. I think it was mostly tea, because nowadays you can get lunches and things there, can't you? Was the copper kettle there? It was there. I don't remember really ever... I remember once going and being told to move because that seat was owned by something quite high. And <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> he always comes and has his coffee at this sort of time. So. <laughs> but yes, I did go there, but not very often. We didn't go out, really, because there wasn't money and you, you never thought of going out. Many thanks to Val Bennett for that piece. I'm free. I'm free. Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. So, time for a quick rundown of what's been available recently. Sarah, just off Cherry Hinton Road, had a bag of onions, all still very firm and usable, she says. Abigail on Mill Road has a few bags of whole grain oats. A different Abigail, near Parker's Peace, has some dog food to give away. Great for your dog. Good for you if you want to recreate Jim Dale's dog food eating scene from Digby the Biggest Dog in the World. And Andrew, located just off East Road, is giving away tea, specifically chamomile and lemon and ginger. And this is always worth pointing out as ever, that Pret-a-Manger gives away plenty of its out-of-date but still fresh and perfectly edible food. Now, they do this using an oleo champion, and that is a person uh, who is a member of the public. They agree to take on the stock, and they advertise about it on oleo on a first-come, first-served basis. So this time around, the champion is a lady called Jane, and she was giving away Pret-a-Manger hot wraps of Swedish meatball and falafel halloumi, egg sandwiches, smoked salmon sandwiches, posh cheddar and pickle baguettes, hummus chipotle wraps, and vegetarian and meat hot pastries. All this food, it's all given away for free. You just need to have the Oleo app installed on your smartphone. It works out where you are, and it tells you how far the food is away from you. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food items from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. Time for a little bit of street food news now, and at Trumpington Meadows, outside Sainsbury's next week, there's the Cook's Nest on Wednesday the 9th, La Levantine Paella on Thursday, and Nano Mexico on Friday, and they are all there during the evening. Navadania has moved. It's still in Newmarket Road, but has crossed over to the building on the other side of the road, number 70, where it has a much greater capacity. 
A new range of porridge blends and granolas is being produced by a company called Pablo and Porridge. Products include cacao and cardamom granola, energizer porridge, all-rounder porridge. No refined or processed sugar is used. They infuse the oats with hand-blended spices. They're available from the Derby stores in Newnham, and if you fancy a journey, the Pangea Cafe in Spitalfields. Alan has had one, he thought it was very tasty. Charles Yeo has featured on Flavour a few times over the years. He's a geneticist who focuses on obesity. He's also an author and broadcaster and has a live event called Why Calories Don't Count, which is also the title of his latest book, new out on Charles this month. His talk is on Sunday, 13th of June, 6.30pm, and you'll need to book tickets, which you can do via his Twitter account at Charles Yeo. We've more food-related news and features coming up after the break. See you in a couple of minutes. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Bode and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com. For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back to Flavour. Now, if you're looking for somewhere relaxing to go, have breakfast, read the papers at a leisurely pace whilst having a coffee, somewhere entirely Cambridgey, this could be the place for you. It's called The Orator, and I met first with Steve Bax, the bursar of the Cambridge Union Society. It's been over 10 years in the making and it's kind of crucial in what we want to do for the future. The Orator Bar and Brasseries is the kind of commercial arm and all of the revenues that will be raised through the Bar and Brasserie will be put back into the charity of the Union Society and will enable us to further develop it for the students of the future. We're in a beautiful Gothic building that requires a lot of maintenance and that's very expensive. There's still lots for us to do. And so yes, by opening this, we hope that you know students love it, it's still their union 
Union and this is still their bar but also we can now open this up to the wider public and Cambridge audience and visitors for somewhere lovely and relaxing to come right in the centre of Cambridge beautiful outside space as well as indoor space so we're all very very proud it's a lovely day for us to have you here you know you're the first people to come in and witness what we've done you have also seen what it was like before so it's a massive change yes so massive it was uh, shall I say tired before yes in need of in a... need of some investment yes. and care and love and care you know yes. I think when people come and see what we've done here they can see the love care and attention that we've put into the building and the environment to make it a really relaxing place to come if you want to come for breakfast and read the papers have a coffee if you want to come back and have a cocktail at lunchtime and then come for some food in the evening so I think something also very important to us was to return the facade of uh, around Church Street back to its original so you'll previously recall that there was like a 1930s shell around the building and that's been taken away. We've completely rebuilt the wall, but back into a Victorian style. So the whole area of Roundchurch Street, we've helped to develop and reinvigorate the Roundchurch Street area. Yes, no, it's beautiful. And there are all these pictures on the walls of famous people who yeah. have spoken at the union presumably yes all of the pictures on the wall are people that have come and taken part in a debate or or had a Q&A session here at the union and uh, yeah there's some wonderful people on the wall I'm sitting here looking at John Lennon so exactly uh, <laughs> so he looks a like very him. young John Lennon yes, bless yes, him yes indeed uh, but also you know Mrs Thatcher as well as Ellie Golding so it's been a wonderful place for people to come and speak and this term we have probably our best term card ever for the students of Cambridge in the next week we've got Theresa Megan we also have Jerry Jeremy Corbyn coming, not at the same time, I think that wouldn't go down well. <laughs> this week we had Joel Domit. It's a really great term card and it's a great time to be a student in Cambridge and we're adding to that student life here. Mm, exactly. And you said that the 1815 bar that was a temporary bar whilst yep. the renovations were taking place, that's going to be returned to a dining room, is that yes, correct? Yes, so that's the original dining room. Traditionally what happens before a debate is that the president of the term and the vice president invite the speakers to dinner and that traditionally took place in the dining room which hasn't been a dining room for many years now due to the development so we're in the process of putting that all back together and yes we will open that as a dining room and all of the spaces here at the union are available to hire if you want to have a birthday party a celebration you know we have the new orator which is available for parties etc but we also have some wonderful historic spaces here and also I gather you've got plans for the garden because it's a one of the largest outside spaces in Cambridge, it I is, gather. It is, yeah, right in the centre of Cambridge. Beautiful space at the rear of the round church, south-facing, so it gets nice and warm in the summer. We've had a designer come in and advise us on what we could do, and that's probably going to be one of the next things that we look to raise funds for, to transform that outside space so, that, so it, it matches the orator inside mm. and it takes the orator outside as well. Ben Hope is the new chef at the Orator, hidden round the back of Cambridge Union on Row Church Street. With their all-day offering of brunch, lunch and dinner, vegan options and brasserie classics, such as steak, lemon sole fillets and burgers, is Ben the head chef with more. A lot of people don't realise that Cambridge Union, they tend to think it's exclusively for students, but now everyone is allowed to come here. You don't have to be a university member to come along to the oratory, do you? No, absolutely. It's open to the public from 9am every morning, seven days a week. Part of the idea of it is to build a bit of awareness around the union so people can you know, come down and get an idea of, of what goes on here. 
Your background is that you've worked at the Plough and Coton and Trinity. That's correct, yeah. And I gather you got an award in 2016, is that right? Yes, I was Cambridge Chef of the Year at Cambridge Food and Drink Awards during my time at the Plough. What would you say is your favourite on the menu so far? Well, I think my favourite thing on the menu, we have a mushroom biryani, a vegan mushroom biryani, which is packed full of flavour, more than most people would expect from a vegan dish. And you've got an open kitchen as well, We have, you? yes. Yes. I always think that's so nice because it means you can actually say thank you to Ab- the chefs. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, very soon you will be able to get up and uh, walk around the building and say thank you. Yes, exactly. That would be really, really nice, won't it? Open at nine for brunch, which we serve through till three o'clock. From five o'clock, the menu sort of changes, more evening type stuff, uh, especially on the small sharing dishes. And there's a lovely bar running through the middle as well, isn't there? Yes, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful building. There's uh, lots of sort of little nods to the union and its history. Hmm. Photos of people who have spoken here all over the walls. Well, I very much hope that we'll be dining here at least once a week, I would be imagining, because it just sounds (laughs) such a great place to come. Well, I'll certainly look forward to seeing you from my side of the past. Indeed. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Not just for students anymore, but for everyone. The orator has been open for the last couple of weeks and has received plenty of praise from cafe-goers and reviewers alike. And that's the music that signals time for the Twitter news. We have to pre-record our programmes now because of limited access to the Cambridge 105 radio studios as a result of the virus, so can't bring you the latest tweets. However, we hope to be back to the studio soon. In the meantime, we can tell you that you can follow Flavor on Twitter, where we are at Flavor105. We're also on Instagram too, as Flavor105. Time for some wine news. Cambridge Wine Merchants has a nice offer of Loire wines. A case of six includes a free online wine tasting event on the 30th of June that features Hal Wilson, Managing Director of Cambridge Wine Merchants, and Fiona Beckett, Wine Critic at The Guardian. Speaking of wine tasting, the Cambridge University Blind Wine Tasting Society has its opening on the 13th of June and anyone of a legal age can enter. Full details are on the Society's website, but briefly you have to pick up their contest samples at the King's Parade Cambridge Wine Merchants after 10am on Friday the 11th of June. Contestants will receive 100ml samples of 6 white wines and 6 red wines, and an online URL to submit their answers. You'll have to guess the following for each wine. Predominant grape variety, that's 4 points. Country of origin, for 3 points region of origin for two points, sub-region of origin for another two points, and vintage also for two points. Sounds like good fun to me. And sticking on the subject of wine, Greek wine is experiencing a bit of an upsurge in popularity lately. Whether in recent articles featured in the Boston Globe, or looking closer to home, the new Greek gastrobar Eno that opened recently in Soho in London. Well, Greek wine first came about six and a half thousand years ago, and it gives me a chance to go back almost six years ago into our flavour vaults when we looked at Greek wine with local specialist Alice Archer.
Greek wine is seeing quite a big resurgence at the moment. The Greeks are a major part, if not the major part, of modern-day wine culture, as they are a major part in most European culture. Wine growing began maybe 6,000 or more years ago. However, despite Greek economy or whatever, Greek wine is now having a resurgence. Emerging regions are very popular in the wine world and also with young, enthusiastic wine drinkers. They want to find wines from new areas, from places like, well, we say new areas, actually they're incredibly traditional, but Slovenia, Georgia, Sardinia, Turkey and Greece all becoming very popular. Greek wine history maybe went through a bit of a negative period in the 70s, 80s. Lots of Retsina, for those who don't remember it, is a white wine. It's made exactly the same way as a normal white wine. It's made from a grape variety usually called Savataino. But they add chunks of pine resin during the aging process. It's a bit like expecting to have a large glass of white wine and ending up with a dry fino sherry or something like that and having quite a sort of shock to your because you've got this kind of resiny, piney note going on. It's not it's not a fruity, grapey thing, it's very much of secondary tastes and aromas. There were a lot of poor quality ones being exported, and I think that was what Greek wine was not all known for. That and sweet muscats, sweet sickly muscats, or Mavra Daphne, which is their kind of port-style thick sweet red wine. But it's all changing, yeah? It's not because Greece didn't have the right environment or the right land or anything. Oh no, absolutely not. No, it's not. I think they exported stuff that was popular locally, mm -hmm. uh, but the Greeks have always made dry wines, just not quite on the scale they are doing it now. So, so Retsina is quite a traditional drink, and so that was their stamp, their hallmark. Whereas actually, doing similar things to everyone else works quite well. But they've, they've got a wealth of indigenous grape varieties as well. Maybe about 300 or so grape varieties. Stuff that has been growing there for maybe 2,000, 3,000 years. And so white wine is in a lot of ancient literature. And they planted many vines. Yeah, so white wine has always been there in Greece. The Greeks then took vines to Italy. After the Romans became the major power in Italy, they took vines to Gaul, some to Britain, some to Germany. So that is how modern European vines spread. As of 2013, there were only about 100,000 hectares of vines but half of that is for table grapes and for drying grapes. So they've got a big culture of yeah, producing eating grapes and raisins, etc., which are completely different to the grapes that we make wine from. Mm. They have a sweeter profile, a more palatable instant profile, and they're, they're different varieties, and they're also, some of them, genetically bred to be seedless, etc. That'll explain why my Sultana wine never really took never, off. Never yeah. really took off. Sadly not, sadly not. Yeah. So, two whites and two reds that I think you should probably look out for. Yeah. The first
first white is Moshko Filero. And this is a particularly aromatic style. It tends to be light, young, not influenced by oak. Uh, it particularly comes from a region called Mantinea in the Peloponnese. So down to southern Greece. And it's, as I say, it's particularly aromatic, floral, sort of rose petal, violet kind of aromas. A little bit grapey as well. It does have some aspects of that. But it's not sweet. Markets like Marks and Spencers have actually been very good at bringing along a few more Greek grape varieties and also other emerging region grape varieties. As I said, they do blend uh, Moscow Falero sometimes, sometimes with Chardonnay. Personally, I'm a big believer in leaving native grape varieties to do their own thing. You know, Chardonnays, Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrahs, they've all made their mark but in a French way. And I feel like when the Greeks or the Turkish grow these great varieties, they're trying to recreate something as opposed to just be their own wine, be their own person. I far prefer wines that I've tried that are just native grape varieties because it allows the characters of that variety to shine through. Mm. As opposed to if you blend one of the reds, for example, with Syrah, yeah. what you're really getting is Syrah and then just a tiny bit extra. And I don't think they're necessarily always complimentary. I think maybe it's a market fear. Maybe they think that people... It's true, if you see a great variety that you know, you're more likely to buy it, I suspect, yes. than if you haven't got a clue what it is. And, you know, Moscow Falero, is it the great variety? Is it the town that it comes from? Is it the name of the wine? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Uh, so maybe it's partly that. But yeah, not quite having enough confidence to think that this shines through by itself. Yeah. Another white wine to look out for, something called Assertico from the island of Santorini. And Assertico, I think, was really what led the resurgence of Greek wine in the last 10 years or so. Assertico from Santorini became terribly fashionable. It's been reviewed by a number of excellent critics. It's a dry style. It's almost somewhere between an Albarino from Spain, from Galicia, and maybe a more kind of Chablis-like thing. It's got a lot of minerality behind it. It's got a bit of a saline tang. So yeah, maybe somewhere between Melbourneo and some styles of Chardonnay. It's quite high acidity. It does get quite alcoholic, but that's because it's it is very hot in Greece, mm. particularly down south, Santorini. Most of the vineyards are on the north of the island, so you haven't got big North African hot winds coming up. Yeah, it does get quite alcoholic, so slightly more heady grape variety, but it got some good citrusy fruit flavours as well, and works very well with wild yeasts and also with some oak ageing. Uh, red wines, but the two to look out for are Achiotico. It's A-G-I-O-R-T-I-K-O, and that's from Nemea, which is the northeastern Peloponnese. I think I've heard of that because you studied the classics, didn't you? Yeah. I studied the classics as well, specifically Asterix and the Olympic Games. Yes, important. Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and actually it can be quite light. It's probably the most commercially produced red wine mm -hmm. that there is from Greece, coming out of Greece. Lots of red berry fruit, stuff like that. Sometimes it's compared to a Sangiovese from Tuscany area but it can also have a nice bit of age as well, richer and more robust. But if you really want something rich from Greece, then you want to go for Shinomavro, spelt X-I-N-O-M-A-V-R-O. Shinomavro. Shinomavro. This, this is actually grown all over Greece, but particularly in Naosa, northern Greece, actually. 
The name translates as acid black. So Malfroy is black, mm. Chinon is acid. It's a very dark grape variety with reasonably high natural acidity. So again, it can get quite alcoholic. Yes, you know, yes. It's quite fierce to drink when young. And so if possible, do try and look out for stuff that's a little bit older. You know, it's 2016 now, so maybe look out for stuff that's from 2012. And by and large, they do age them in barrels for a while in the cellars in Greece. Mm. And it is, it is delicious wine, particularly if you have got a big leg of lamb or something like that with some Greek-style sides to go with it. Imagine where it works. So, as I said, I do encourage more people to adventure out and try Greek wines. So if you see any of those four grape varieties, hopefully you'll now recognise them and pick them up. And yeah, many, many supermarkets now branching out a bit. And I do also recommend there's actually a Greek wine festival in London now. Only started last year. It's run by a company called the Greek Larder. And that'll be, that's in October. There will be more Greek wine flowing. And it's not all Retsina. And if you'd like to see Greek wine flowing, then you only have to head over to local specialists like the Cambridge Wine Merchants. They've got branches on Bridge Street, King's Parade and Cherry Hinson Road, and they are full of interesting wines from all regions, and specialist wines too. And specialist isn't code for expensive either. Like so many things, wine is subject to fashion, and fashion can dictate price. If you know what qualities interest you in wine, you can cut through those fashions and get some truly excellent wines from specialists like the Cambridge Wine Merchants and do it for great prices too. You know, I'm, I'm always reminded of Medoran, one of the best wines I've had. So smooth, so sweet, such quality, just not particularly fashionable at the time, so it wasn't expensive. Anyway, let's move on from quality wine to quality music and... That's Booker T and the MGs with Green Onions signalling the start of our job section. Liz Young of The Modern Table and now with The Wine Rooms is looking for people who love food and wine to work in the wine rooms which are in Hills Road. Full-time, part-time and casual positions are available and you don't need to be a professional chef. Contact The Modern Table or the wine rooms via Instagram. Aromi needs a pizza chef, a supervisor, as well as counter and kitchen assistants. So send your CV to jobs at aromi.co.uk. Steak and honour require all manner of staff, full-time and part-time. Email them hello at steakandhonour.co.uk. Limoncello in Mill Road, the Maypole in Portugal Place, Jamaica Blue in Lion Yard, and the Eagle in Bennett Street are all looking for chefs. You can pop into any of these places during a quiet moment to find out more. The Lord Byron in Grantchester and Wagamama in Regent Street both need a head chef. Amelie, who make those wonderful flum couche in the Grafton Centre, they're like pizzas but uh, rather lighter on the stomach, are looking for a chef de partie. The Gonville Hotel in Gonville Place needs a chef de partie and a senior chef de partie. Restaurant 22 in Chesterton Road is looking for a commie chef. And finally, Clare College is also in need of a chef de partie. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. We are here on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm, and of course we are available by podcast early the following week. 
Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is Ollie Slag with Swartz Special, followed at 2pm by Sue Marchant Selection. The new music generator is here at 4, and then at 6 o'clock it's Chris Brown's Soul and Dance Show. Paul Tristoforu is back at 8pm with another edition of Rock of Ages, and Dave Price takes you through to midnight with Club Beats. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 19th of June with lots more food and drink, news, jobs, features and Alan. So, until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>